Okay, okay, so we are winding down to the end of season two with a couple of more episodes. And today we have an amazing guest, uh, Jordan Stockdale, who is the executive director of the Young Men's Initiative here in New York City. Uh, the Young Men's Initiative was launched in 2011 as uh, a way to tackle disparities that young men of color face within New York City. So it's definitely aligned with uh, the My Brother's Keepers Initiative, if you're familiar with that that was launched with uh, Barack Obama in the White House, uh, as well as the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, if you're familiar with that, um, and really just to try to figure out different pathways for opportunity, for advancement, um, and especially um, ending uh, a lot of the tragic issues that we are consistently seeing play out on the news or on social media that impact uh, young men of color. So Jordan is that guy, uh, and we had an amazing conversation of how he kind of got from point A to point B has a really interesting journey. And so I'm really excited for you all to take a listen. All right, let's get ready. This is the Black Stage. All right, all right. So we got Jordan Stockdale on the podcast today. I'm super excited to have him on. Jordan is the executive director of the Young Men's Initiative in New York City. Um, he is making sure these kids do what they need to do, get what they need, get where they need to go. And uh, he's been doing all of that in a global pandemic on top of a political season. So I am super excited uh, to talk to Jordan about the ins and the outs of that. Jordan, thank you for stopping by this podcast. How are you doing, my man? Man, thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. So, so look, there's there's just so many things that uh, I always say. There's, there's so many things I want to talk to you about because I obviously have people in this podcast who I just there's there's so many insights that I think that you can provide the audience that listens to Black Stage. But I first want to start with you know how did you get your start? Like how did you get going in this journey of of doing the work that you do? Yeah, yeah. So I knew I wanted to teach from an early age. I knew like the my what I thought my purpose was in was to help other people find their purpose. This is like an epiphany I had in high school. And so I was like, the best way to do that, I thought was like either through journalism or teaching. Journalism, you you're also basically a teacher just on a wider scale. Uh so I was in undergrad. I'm so first of all, I'm from Kansas City. Uh grew up Kansas in Kansas City, State. Missouri or Kansas City, Kansas. Well done. Well done. The East Coast, they don't know. They don't know. They think we're in Kansas. So Kansas City, Missouri. Okay. You know, okay. Are, where the Royals are, you know, where the barbecue's at, you know, Kansas City, Missouri. Across um, the bridge. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, so I grew up there and I went to uh, University of Missouri for undergrad. And there I worked at an after-school program. And I was like, and, and so I was teaching, I was teaching kids at an alternative school. And it just felt like the right thing. So then I applied to, oh, then, all right. So then a little step back. Then I was also our program director at the radio station there. And I somehow convinced them to fly me out to New York. It didn't even make any sense. And they sent me to some conference out here. I'd step out the plane. I didn't even go to the conference. I was so amazed by this city. I was like, this doesn't like all the different cultures, the different languages, the foods, everything. I was like, this is just where I want to be. And so I applied to teach out here, um, you know, and then began teaching in East Harlem and living in East Harlem uh, when I moved out here 11 years ago now. But, you know, part of the reason I wanted to get into education is my mother. She uh, was the only one in her family, in her large family, to, to graduate from college. And the reason she did that is because she had a teacher that said, hey, you can go to college. You could do this, you know, and here's and they told her about a different scholarship that she could apply for. Uh, that paid for, you know, her to go. 
And that one decision really changed her life uh, and changed my life and is going to change generations to come. And so, you know, seeing that the difference in, in wealth, honestly, you know what I mean? From, from her going to college and my experiences versus some of my other family members, I was like, this is, this is a life-changing career. Uh, and so that's why I got into education first. Uh, so from education, I got a Fulbright scholarship, went out to Spain. I did some teaching there, did some research on how the austerity measures were basically screwing kids with disabilities. And then from there, I went uh, to Princeton for graduate school. Um, at Princeton, I walked up to a dude who was speaking on a panel to end mass incarceration. And he was amazing speech. And I was like, oh, this brother's doing it. So I went up to him and I said, hey, man, do you need an intern? And he was like, yes, I do. <laughs> and so I started interning for him. I then got hired on and he was at the mayor's office of criminal justice, got hired on and then just stayed you know, at the mayor's office in various positions. So I was I did a school climate and safety work. So reducing the number of arrests and summonses and suspensions in schools. Uh, from there, I moved to uh, like juvenile justice work, uh, then to close Rikers. I was our deputy director for closed Rikers. Uh, we got to close Rikers and that campaign came from the streets first, you know, uh, and then from that, you know, I became the executive director of the Young Men's Initiative. So that's the whole whole story. So so take me back really quickly. Uh, let's rewind real quick. And, and I'm curious, you, you, you said uh, there was a guy who, who put you on. You didn't say the name, though. So who is he? And what oh, yeah. Vinny Chiraldi, man. Vinny Chiraldi. <laughs> he put me on. That's my mentor. He was, uh, so he used to run probation under Bloomberg and he had a bunch of innovative models. He was all about reducing the number of people on probation, reducing the number of people that got violated, increasing the number of resources for people. Um, and then that's what he did under Bloomberg under Blasio. He was a senior advisor and had like no staff. So I literally was his first staff person as an intern <laughs> and then he hired me on. So, Yeah. That's incredible. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your period working on Close Rikers? I, I heard the passion come out a little bit when you were talking about it. Um, it's very controversial um, and it's complex. Uh, you know, there was, you know, some announcements that, you know, I think that got kind of mixed in with other understandings. And so is Rikers going to close? Is it there a plan to close Rikers? And if so, like, what is that plan? What was your, your, your position in all of that when it was happening? Yeah. So first, definitely complex, complicated, and there's a lot of smart people that dislike it. And there's a lot of smart people that like it. So I've got a lot of friends that are not necessarily for it and I respect them, but I can tell you why I really believe in this plan. So first of all, the, the call to close Rikers came from organizations that came from formerly incarcerated people, right? They created a movement that was over a hundred different organizations. I think it was actually over 200 organizations that wouldn't quit until, you know, eventually we said we're going to close records. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And you had that happen and you had the New York times writing articles every other day. You had the DOJ report uh, that showed the conditions of the 16 and 17 year olds in Rikers. And then you also had the Khalif Browder story all come out in the same period, right? And that gave the power and the, the political capital to make a decision to close Rikers Island and for the mayor to say, I'm gonna close Rikers. Cause it's not an easy decision. You wanna know, be really clear on that because to do that, you have to then have some capacity in the boroughs and nobody wants to live next to a jail. So you know what I mean? So part of the reason why Rikers existed, it was like, keep those people on an island. Let's forget about it. I don't want to deal with it. Right. 
but to close Rikers and then to move it into, uh, to move smaller, you know, better facilities in the city is definitely has some controversy, right? Because people don't live next to it. So here's the broader plan. Uh, the plan is to close Rikers by 2026. Again, it's a kind of out there a lengthy time period, and there's a bunch of reasons why but I can get into that. Um, and that passed city council. So in city council, after 2026, Rikers Island cannot be a jail by city law. So mm. that, that's definitely going to happen, mm. which is a beautiful thing. Uh, the plan is to close Rikers, which has a capacity to hold you know, tens of thousands of people. In 1992, it had 22,000 people in Rikers, which is crazy. Uh, today, I haven't looked at the numbers in a bit, but it was like below 5,000. So the numbers are way, and that's system-wide. So numbers are way, way down. The plan is to close Rikers and build a system that has capacity for 3,300 people. So no more than 3,300 people, uh, which is roughly about a fourth of the capacity that we have now. So we have, mm-hmm. uh, we have way, way more capacity to incarcerate people. And then for the fewer people that are incarcerated to have better conditions for them. All jails are terrible. Jails suck. Mm-hmm. There are better mm-hmm. and worse jails. Mm-hmm. There are jails that provide better services. There are jails that are safer for the people that are actually there. So just give you a little bit on this. Rikers has um, dorms, 60-bed dorms. Mm-hmm. I mean, now you can imagine why that would not be the safest situation compared to a facility that only has single bed dorms or single bed uh, units rather. So you say you sleep by yourself. You're not sleeping with a bunch of other people around you. Um, Rikers wasn't designed to give people services. You have to move a lots of people around all day long to get people services, get people wrecked, to get people food in the periods of movement is where a lot of the violence happens. And so the, the design of new facilities would have smaller housing units where you have the services embedded so you don't have to bring people throughout the whole facility, which is important so you don't mix populations that don't need to, to mix. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot there. I would say broadly, though, like I believe that government can improve the current situation. And given what's politically possible, that plan was the best plan. Mm-hmm. Like we don't live in a society where America's largest city isn't going to have a jail. That's just not the society we live in. There's nothing in our history that suggests New York City, America's largest city, is just all of a sudden not going to have a jail. People wouldn't do that. But you can drastically reduce the capacity to incarcerate, right? You can pass that. And you can provide better services for the fewer people that are there. So that's, that's why I believed in it. That's why I was for it. I know it's controversial. I know there's people that didn't mess with it. Um, and I know that it takes resources to do that, right? But I think those resources are wisely spent because when you treat people better, one, that's by its own, treating people better that are incarcerated is super, super important. Like that should be enough. But also you then reduce the amount of trauma people experience, right? And you can provide better services and reduce recidivism. Uh, and so that's all just an important piece of it. There's so many... Um... Uh, as you as you were talking about, I was just thinking about the complexities and the ins and outs, um, but also speaking about directly impacted folks, um, folks who come from marginalized communities who are impacted by the criminal justice system more than others. And I'm thinking about uh, MBK, my brother's keeper. I'm thinking about the campaign for Black Male Achievement. I'm thinking about these various different initiatives that were really kind of like at you know during the starting in the Obama era, but then like you know moving forward after trying to like shift narratives and. Shift 
shift understandings and create pathways and opportunities for black men and boys, um, particularly around the ages of like 13 to 19, um, to kind of like gain some momentum around, you know, hey, like this is this is what's happening. This is what's going on. Let's start a dialogue. Let's let's discuss. Right. And, you know, again, some people are for those initiatives. Some people are against those initiatives. Some people there there's there's ins and outs. There's a lot of conversation. But when I think about the work in particularly that you're doing, um, you're really kind of like uh, in, in many ways uh, going up against the stream of a continuous narrative that discusses uh, and perpetuates different things around uh, black boys, young black men, uh, uh, young men of color. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, thinking about like, you know, how you shifted from doing this work as deputy executive director for uh, Closing Rikers and then moving into executive director for the uh, Young Men's Initiative in New York City. Like what kind of what kind of tools did you take with you um, from your past role and how are you applying it now? And can you talk to me a little bit about your work that you're doing right now and what you've been doing? Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So I'll just take answer the last question first. So the Young Men's Initiative is the office of the mayor that's explicitly focused on reducing racial disparities and empowering young people. And we do that through investing in and co-managing programs across workforce development, employment, education, which includes our mentoring programs, criminal justice reform, and we have a couple of health initiatives. And so that's that's the basic model. I think our most popular program is New York City Men Teach. And that's a program that's designed to increase the number of men of color in the classroom and has been doing that. Uh, so that's you know, a really exciting program. Encourage folks to check that out. Um, and I feel like Close Rikers, I, you know, I had a bunch of different roles on that. I also was leading our Raise the Age work at the time. Uh, and so this is real quickly on Raise the Age. New York State was one of two states in the entire country that automatically charged 16-year-olds as adults for any crime for any crime. It was us in North Carolina. Uh, somehow, like, you know, progressive states of Texas, Mississippi had better policies. But so, so that, like, that role was, was an implementation role, but also it was a coalition building role. And the same with Close Rikers. It was like, what's the coalition we need to push through better policies. And on the Close Rikers side, there was already a big coalition. And so it was a lot of me just listening to folks that have been in the movement for a long period of time. You had people that, you know, were, that were pushing for criminal justice reform for decades and they're like, this is our moment. You know what I mean? So it was a lot of just listening to them. Um, it was, and it was a lot of just coalition building around what are the policies we want passed and listening to people and trying to push that through on, on my side as well, on the government side. So it's a very, very different job <laughs> than the Young Men's Initiative. Honestly, on the Young Men's Initiative, I feel like my experience teaching actually helped me more for this role. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And that's because, but, but I think there's the same ethos that can apply to, to both jobs, which is I see my role right now as trying to get money and resources to, uh, to initiatives and community-based organizations that are doing the work on the ground uh, and that know that have one are, are serving the right populations, right? Mm-hmm. Who are really ingrained in the community and 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 are able to solve a, a bunch of different problems. Uh, and so that's that's what I see. And then also on the on the closed Rikers side, I would say that part of I think the reason why we had such a powerful coalition um, is because there is, and this is just a part of it, but a very important part of it is that the, there's a credible messenger network, and that's. And the credible messenger crisis management system 
that's that's something that existed, you know, for, for a while, but it's been really scaled um, recently. And basically, that's groups that pay people with lived experience that maybe have been formerly incarcerated mm-hmm. um, that know you know their neighborhood really well, that know the streets and can reduce and literally just reduce crime and can connect people to resources, uh, can reduce retaliatory crime. I come to talk to folks like you don't want to do this. This is, you know, people are like you can get in trouble, you can go to jail, yada, yada. Uh, but also just build with folks. So I guess connect me, connect me to the day to day. Talk to me about like what does the day to day look uh, like for you? Yeah. So the day to day is actually a lot of fun. Um, it's it's it like differs all the time. Right now I'm working on a bunch of different things. So we, one of our initiatives is a community crisis response initiative where we just allocate funding out to community organizations. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's an amazing thing to do uh, to get the money out to communities. And so we are about to launch that again uh, for summer programming to make sure that our young people have programming throughout the summer, particularly after this really difficult year. Yeah. Where folks couldn't learn on, you know, a lot of, a lot of kids struggle to learn online. I know I would have struggled. I struggled to pay attention in high school in general. <laughs> so. I, 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 you know, I give credit so much. I mean, the teachers, the parents, the kids, like I give so much credit um, to to everyone because I I was someone who could not take online classes. I had to be in the classroom. I had to be present in the space because it just didn't it just didn't do it for me. I, I think I took in all my years of school uh, and it was a lot of years. Uh, I think I attempted to take a computer science class in college and I tried it for like one week and I said, no, I need to, I need to be in person. So I switched out of that class and took an in-person class. <laughs> so yeah, no, for sure. I completely understand that. We had kids, right? We had like first mm-hmm. 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 Um, mm-hmm. Uh, offering some programming that it can be, you know, academic tutoring, mentoring. Um, it can be a, you know, a variety of different programs, but we are going to fund a bunch of them this summer. And so that already existing CBOs, you know, community-based organizations are in the communities already helping kids that have amazing programs. Uh, they can apply for funding and then we're going to fund a bunch of them. And so I'm really excited to launch that. We've done that twice before and, um, you know, we get to see the results of it. Mm-hmm. Um, are really powerful. And so we, we funded cure violence organizations that we talked about earlier. We funded programs that work with, you know, first and second graders and in Brownsville, you know, or like dance programs. So it's like all kinds of different things. Um, and so that's, that's one part of it. Um, on the, on the, uh, let me just talk a little bit about my guiding philosophy here. New York city has an amazing amount of human capital, particularly in, in the black and Brown community, right? Like we have so many successful, whatever you want to define success by brothers and sisters here. Right. And so I see my job as trying to coordinate those resources, that human capital to mentor and tutor generations below them. So we have a program with CUNY uh, called CUNY Tutor Corps that, that we have, you know fund um, that pays CUNY students, particularly CUNY men teach students. So this is my, mostly uh, brothers of, uh, you know, of, of color in CUNY that are doing well in education to tutor a, a slightly younger version of themselves in high school and middle school, right? And so the kids get to see themselves in their tutor and mm-hmm. learn, right? Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that's the way to close the gap. You have to see yourself in success to be successful. Wow. If you can't imagine yourself in success, you will not be successful. So much of it is just confidence, 
So much of the world is just straight up confidence, right? And so if you can see yourself, if you got somebody coming to you on a regular basis, helping you push through, you know, academically, helping you plan things out, and you say, yo, this guy's like me, he came up in a similar position like me. And that's exactly what the credible messenger system is as well, right? Like back to our other point, is the Cure Violence Credible Messenger, they're mentors for, you know, younger versions of themselves, Folks that may have, you know, be in gangs, maybe, you know, formerly incarcerated. It's the same system, same principle that you can apply to a bunch of different scenarios that just leverages the beauty of, you know, human capital, the black and brown communities we have in New York to tutor and help the younger versions themselves. And someone has to resource that. And I view us, you know, as part of that, that resource. Mm-hmm. That's my guiding philosophy. You hear the dirt bikes because I'm in North. <laughs> It's okay. It's okay. Keep, keep it real. You know, I, 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 um, you know, there's something around like community impact, social impact that like, I think that definitely ties into like what you're saying. It's like, there's so much power within community. There's so much power in being able to have representation, um, and being able to know you, I, I, I always say you can't, you can't be what you can't see. Um, and so if you don't know that there are people in places of power or doing innovative things or in creative spaces or, or doing whatever it is that you might have an idea for yourself, right. Um, just in like, uh, even in a, in a wellness capacity, right. Like you, you, you just can't lean into it in a way that I think that, um, you know, many would hope that a lot of folks who are coming through your program, uh, do. So I'm super excited to hear like, just kind of like what you're doing as far as like representation and, and what you're bringing to the table. Um, I, I would, I, I'm always, um, curious about futures though. Like when you think about like the future of this program, when you think about the, the future of work for, for what you have been able to do, what does that look like? Especially like, I'm sure you had to like be very innovative yourself, um, in this past year and a half of a global pandemic where I'm sure a lot of things were in person. Now you've gone virtual. Now we're doing hybrids. Like what is, what do you, what does the future look like? I mean, that's a great question. So. I feel like in my ideal world, we create systems that truly leverage all of the resources we have, in ter- especially in terms of human capital, right? So we have CUNY, we have Columbia, NYU. There are a ton of different schools throughout the city uh, where folks need money, especially black and brown students, to pay them in a, in a large scale capacity to mentor in a structured way younger versions of themselves and tutor younger versions of themselves, I think is a key to closing disparities and closing the gap. So I think that's part of it. And there, not only is it going to be not, you know, mentoring and you know, tutoring in academic sense, but also how do you navigate FAFSA? How do you get to college? How do you do the application? How do you deal with failure? Right. Cause you're not going to get into everything and how do you keep on yep. perseverance? Yeah. So I think that's, that's the future of the work that I think was, would be really compelling is creating structures to better leverage existing talent that we have in the, in the city. On the future of work, I, I mean, that's an interesting question. I, like, uh, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't get into, to, I'm not trying to get into the mayoral race, um, but we're not yet seeing large numbers of jobs replaced by like AI or anything like that. Like that, that could happen well into the future. But right now we are seeing a lot more jobs uh, in healthcare, right? In health tech. And so those are spaces that I think we should be pushing folks into because they're great, pay, you know, it could be great paying jobs. Um, and, then, and then on outside of just employment, I think that we as 
uh, a society needs, we need to sustain our unions and push our unions, particularly outside of New York City. Like the union is the setup to middle-class lifestyle, especially for folks that um, may have some college or no college, right? And it's like, we've let unions come, the, the percentage of, of employees that are in unions has gone way, 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 way down. So I think part of if you, you know, just talking about reducing racial disparities and closing the gap, particularly in work, which you just asked, is empowering our unions across the nation. Um, it, yeah. And, and, and that's a controversial statement in New York and for a bunch of different reasons. But that, I think, is, is something that we have to get back to if we're going to close, uh, close some of these gaps. Does the future of politics, uh, uh, is the future of politics a part of your journey? Yeah, it might be, man. Honestly, I'm not like, it's not the end all be all for me. I like being what I was like describing myself as like a player in things. So knowing mm-hmm. what's moving, knowing how to help people, knowing how to get resources in certain situations. Um, but I want my goal to always be to influence policy to help more people. And I don't, and I, I mean, I like meeting people and I like, you know, that kind of thing, but I, I don't want to be 24 seven, taking pictures of myself, shaking it. Like I just, I don't think I'd be happy. And also what I really, really don't want to do, which I think to some extent you kind of have to do in politics um, is like see everyone as a potential opportunity for yourself, mm. your own self-aggrandizement. And you know, that's not inherent to politics, but there's a lot of that. And so I see the trappings of it and it scares me just to be totally real with you. And I also don't want to like, to, to run for office nowadays, you are working 120 hours a week. And it's not always to like do anything for anyone besides yourself. And I was like, I don't think I'd be happy doing that. So that's to say like, there are things that scare me about it, um, but I'm not saying I wouldn't do it at some point if I thought it was the right move. But also like uh, Harlem politics is a blood sport and I'm not trying to like, I'd rather just be good with people and be able to make things move and like help people and not like. You said Harlem politics is a blood sport? It is, man. It is. Oh my <laughs> Lord. It's, it, uh, I don't even know what that even means. But, um, <laughs> I, I, it doesn't sound good. <laughs> I mean, I just mean like, look, there's, it's politics right now is zero sum. You have mm-hmm. one winner, you have a lot of incredibly talented people in here. And so they got to distinguish themselves somehow. And so people create, you know, different camps, man. I want to be part of that. Mm. Okay. All right. So there is a window of opportunity for, for Jordan to, to go into politics, but he does. Yeah, there's a window. There, he does recognize that there it is a blood sport outside of the window. But also like the, the point of life is like to be happy. Yeah, so, <laughs> I want to be happy and just like, you know, that's always the, the guiding force. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm curious, like when you think about all the work that you you're you're doing with the Young Men's Initiative, do you have a specific story that stands out that is uh, particularly focused on impact or success um, that you can share on the podcast? Like, is there a young man that you worked with that's like, yo, like when he started this program, he was here when, you know, like what do you have any stories in particular that you could share? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there we, are, try to, we try to ask good questions here, Jordan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of questions or sorry, there's a lot of people that have been through various programs that have definitely benefited. I'm trying to think if I have one from men teach off the top of my head, because that's the one where I think. There are so many, you know what, 
I will have, I don't have this on me right now, but we are doing, we're filming some, uh, some advertisements and like TV programs for men teach to encourage people to become teachers, you know, uh, colored come teachers. And so we're actually interviewing young people and we're saying, what was it like for you to have a male, you know, a black man teacher? What was that like for you? You know, and how did that impact you? And so I will have a bunch of stories and then, the, you know, hopefully the world will see the stories, but I don't have anything off the top of my head right now. Okay. Okay. That's fair. When you, when you think about, um, the young kid from Missouri, uh, <laughs> who was growing up in Kansas city, um, and you think about that kid and, and, uh, you know, his dreams, his aspirations, where he was at or whoever he was. Um, and you think about the man that you are today, uh, what advice would you give him? <laughs> you know, I've thought about this question. Um, I never thought that I would go to Princeton or I didn't know anything about New York like that growing up. Um, I didn't think that I, I definitely didn't have the confidence I have now, you know, I just really, yeah, it's definitely, I just didn't have it. Mm. I, I wasn't focused at all. And I don't know if I would give myself advice because things have turned out right. You know, like there's always that question, would you call yourself if you could, you know, years in the past and say, do this differently, change this, you know? And I always thought I'd be like, you know, work harder or like focus more, but things have worked out in a way that I've been able to do things that I really like and be able to help people and got lucky in many ways, you know, got lucky that I met a mentor at a panel. And honestly, I got this job from the same way. The deputy mayor was speaking on a panel. I went up to him and said, can we get coffee? He said, yes, I got coffee with him. He liked me. You know, I applied for this job like four months later, like he, I don't know, eight months after that, <laughs> they got back to me, got me the job, you know, it's like, so I, you know, I feel like I've been really blessed and lucky um, and learned a ton. I would say that if I could talk to younger people, like younger versions of myself, um, I would say that like, you can do anything. And I know that's like really corny and that's what everyone says, but it's the truth. <laughs> and like, um, and build with people learn from people, meet as many people as you can and take in the lessons, you know, from those people. One of the things I do is I read a lot of biographies and I also ask to meet with a lot of really prominent, you know, people that are doing amazing things. And I always take notes on how they got to where they got and what is like their guiding philosophy. What are the routines they have? You know, what do they believe made them successful? And so I've been taking notes on that for years and you see themes and you see, you know, different, you know, uh, different things among those kind of people. So um, that's what I would say. I would just say build with as many people as possible, but also keep, you know, the, the North star North that, you know, you want to be here to help the community and help others, right? Like we have to build a village. Uh, and I was th just thinking about your interview uh, with Jameer and about, you know, the gu with gun violence and, and that kind of problem and, and gun violence is up right now. It's scary. It's up in, you know, uh, across the nation, but it's up in Harlem and it's up in New York. And it's like, we all have to feel like we're a part of that village to, to close the gaps uh, so that people do have opportunities, you know, and that's what I'm, I'm hoping I'm doing in this role. And I'm hoping that, you know, we're inspiring other people to do the same thing and that we're helping bring those resources uh, to, to bring the community together. And a lot of people are doing that work. So, yeah. It takes a village. Yeah, man takes a village jordan stockdale thank you very much for your time man i appreciate you i appreciate you too man